Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In many streets and lanes, the wretched inhabitants were literally blocked up in their houses and in the attempt to go abroad experienced every kind of misery that it was possible to imagine. It is painful to state that the number of deaths there have, within the last few days, been greater than any other period, unless at the time of the plague. We were informed that 80 funerals occurred last Sunday. The coffin makers in Cook Street can with difficulty complete their numerous orders. Dublin newspaper, February 1814. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 3, The Last Frost Fair I want you to imagine walking the streets of London. Perhaps you've been to London. Even if you haven't, you've probably seen movies set there or pictures of it. Forget all the modern stuff. Uh, The red double-decker buses, Big Ben, Buckingham Palace, Piccadilly Circus. Forget all of that. Imagine London in 1814. Winter 1814. It's bitter, bitter cold. And it's a wet cold. The kind that penetrates down to your bones. You You can never really get warm. The fog is thick and choking. It's too thick and dangerous for you to go outside, or at least to travel very far. The daytime is dim with a kind of dark reddish haze hanging over the city. London's tangled narrow streets fill with old buildings, some centuries old, almost touching each other, over cobblestones, gutters filled with garbage, the fleet ditch with all its sewage, trash, and half-frozen human corpses in it. Everything smells like smoke and rot. 
It's not a cheerful place. Your country's at war, prices are high, unemployment high, the slums of the city, rookeries they called them, are filled with poor people, destitute children, widows of soldiers killed in the war, or effectively widowed by sailor husbands who spent years at sea, some unwillingly, the British Navy still used impressment in 1814. Thanks to the work of Dickens, we easily envision urban London in the early Victorian era as a sort of dystopian hell, dirty, full of social problems, choked by coal smoke. But honestly, it wasn't much better, or really any better at all, 30 years earlier, in the second decade. This was London in the winter of 1814. Hold this image in your mind. It's going to be important as we get to tonight's main subject. But despite this nightmarish image, there is another London, one you can't see most of the time. This London is fun and frivolous, magical and mysterious. This is London as you might see it in a storybook, a carnival circus filled with clowns, games, beautiful women in colorful gowns, bears, horses, sword swallowers, grog shops, gambling parlors, brothels, souvenir stands, exotic food, and a million unforgettable sights. This London, a sort of crypto London, only barely exists. It's kind of a frosty fantasy kingdom that only comes out when certain rare conditions happen, specifically when the River Thames freezes solid, which doesn't happen very often. On the frozen Thames, this other London appears on the frozen river, and it's called a frost fair. For a few magical days, you can escape that nightmarish scene I just described, and cavort in this frosty crypto-London, a place that some called Frostiana. The last time Frostiana appeared, and probably the last time it will ever appear, was during the second decade, and that's our story tonight. It has to do with old London Bridge, ferry operators, coach drivers, a printing press, a roasted sheep, hydrodynamics, a series of snowstorms and cold snaps in Britain and Ireland, and volcanoes. It has a lot to do with volcanoes. If you're wondering how all of this comes together, stick with me. You might want to put on a sweater. Our story is a little frosty. The second decade of the 19th century was a time of dramatic, temporary global climate change. It's not the same kind of climate change that's undoubtedly happening in our own time. Instead of global warming, which is what we have now, it was global cooling. And instead of being caused mostly by human activity, which is the case with modern climate change, the changes in the second decade were largely natural in origin, but no less catastrophic. Global cooling can be caused by volcanic eruptions. When a large volcano erupts in the tropical latitudes of the Earth, it expels a lot of dust into the atmosphere. This volcanic dust becomes suspended in the atmosphere, which is why we call these large-scale eruptions stratospheric volcanic eruptions. The chemical and physical properties of this volcanic dust reflects solar radiation. Scientists can find layers of volcanic fallout in ice cores taken in Greenland and Antarctica. Layers of snow and ice can be dated just like the rings of a tree. That's how they know when large volcanic eruptions have happened in the past and when they happened. The largest volcanic eruption in the whole of recorded human history occurred during the second decade. That was a mountain called Tambora, 
located in what's now Indonesia, which exploded catastrophically on April 10, 1815. The volcanic dust circled the earth and affected climate enough to cause the succeeding years, 1816 and 1817, to be abnormally cold. There were many strange weather events in Europe and America during this time, and in fact, 1816 is known as the year without summer. That's a story that many people know, or at least have heard of. In future episodes, I'm going to be talking a lot about the year without summer, and in fact, Tambora is going to be the subject of a standalone episode coming up pretty soon. But it turns out there's more to the story than Tambora or the year without summer. In recent years, since the turn of the 21st century, climate change researchers have discovered evidence of another major volcanic eruption, one of which we know almost nothing. We don't know which mountain it was or where it was located. But the layers in the ice cores don't lie. Samples taken at both poles in Greenland and Antarctica show that in addition to the well-known layer of fallout from the Tambora eruption, there is another, thinner layer just a few notches above that one. All we know is that another major volcano, smaller than Tambora but still very big, erupted in February or March of 1809, the very beginning of the second decade. The identity of this Mountain X is a historical mystery that hasn't yet been solved. But Mountain X at least explains why temperature records, as reconstructed from spotty local data and things like tree rings, wine harvest dates, and other clues, show that the entire decade, from 1810 to 1819, was one of abnormally cool temperatures, the coldest 10-year period in the past 500 years. The temperature decline began five years before the Tambora eruption, which meant that, or at least that alone, couldn't have caused it. Mountain X, however, solves this mystery. We know that a volcano erupted in 1809, and it would have taken several months for the weather patterns to affect temperatures. But even before temperature declines and odd weather start showing up in historical accounts, stratospheric volcanic eruptions leave another telltale trace, magnificent sunsets. The volcanic dust, once it rises into the atmosphere, scatters light at certain wavelengths. Blue, indigo, and violet shades are usually scattered, leaving sunsets a beautiful, glowing orange-red. There are reports of unusually spectacular sunsets from this period, beginning in the spring of 1809, just months after the eruption of Mountain X, so the evidence is all there. Once it's been put there by an eruption, this volcanic dust can hang there in the atmosphere for years. During those years, we can expect to see a lot of low average temperatures, especially in summer, a lot of extreme weather events, cooler, shorter summers, and particularly severe winters. There may also be curious atmospheric effects, even beyond brilliant sunsets. There may be strange fogs, the appearance of the sun or moon may be different or unusual, or snow might fall in colors, typically yellow or red. Luke Howard, was a chemist and amateur scientist who lived in London. Howard's obsession was the study of clouds, weather, and climate. In 1802, he developed the classification of cloud types that we still use today. Cirrus, nimbus, stratus, cumulonimbus, that sort of thing. Throughout much of his life, and especially in the second decade, he kept meticulous records of weather events he noticed, 
both from personal observation and mentioned in newspapers and media of the time. On July 29, 1813, Howard made a note of a particularly beautiful sunset. He described it as being of flame color and referred to a dewy haze that was in the atmosphere that evening. That summer, 1813, was remembered as especially cool and mild. In Gibraltar, an English observer noted in early October that the rains came early and it was cool enough to make people want to light their fireplaces indoors. In the early 19th century, this was a common way of how people noted cool or wet weather. In many sources over and over again, people talk about lighting fires indoors. Often they say, as this Englishman in Gibraltar did, that a fire was, quote, agreeable. On Christmas Day, 1813, and the next day, December 26th, the term Boxing Day doesn't seem to have come into vogue until about 20 years later, a moderate easterly wind settled over Britain and Ireland. Luke Howard noted that bees were unusually active, which he interpreted as a sign that a big frost was coming. The bees buzzing around London seemed to have been right. The night of December 26, fog and frost descended on Britain and Ireland with a vengeance. The fog was extremely dense, almost impenetrable. Residents of Great Britain couldn't remember such a thick fog in most of their lifetimes. The last one quite so bad was said to have occurred on New Year's Day, 1730. It was also very cold, with the temperature plunging as low as 19 degrees Fahrenheit. The average low temperature in London in December is 36.1 degrees, so that gives you some comparison. The fog lifted a little on December 30th, but it didn't get any warmer. Howard mentions much red in the morning and evening sky on that day, and he says there was a smell of electricity in the air. The thick fog returned a few days later, on January 4th, or it may never really have lifted much at all. The reports conflict. The fog was so thick and impenetrable that it made traveling, even by horse and carriage, hazardous, especially in the city. More than one person accidentally fell into the Fleet Ditch, a notorious river inlet in London that was choked with sewage, trash, and animal remains from tanneries. A pretty horrible death if you think about it. Other deaths were recorded from similar accidents, people stumbling around in the thick fog and falling into various bodies of water. The mail became very slow to move and stopped in some places. The Prince Regent, who at the end of the decade would become King George IV, tried to go out on one of these nights to visit the Marcus of Salisbury, a prominent politician, but he had to turn back because the fog was too thick and his own drivers were getting lost in it. As the cold fog lingered, a bizarre but beautiful weather phenomenon bloomed. Howard writes, quote, The air had been, in effect, loaded with particles of freezing water, such as in a higher region would have produced snow. These attached themselves to all objects, crystallizing in the most regular and beautiful manner. A blade of grass was thus converted into a pretty thick stalagmite. Some of the shrubs, covered with spreading tufts of crystals, looked as if they were in blossom, while others, more firmly encrusted, might have passed for gigantic specimens of white coral. The cold and fog may have been sort of self-perpetuating. The Thames River Valley has a natural tendency to accumulate very thick fogs, especially in wintertime, even under natural circumstances. The same geographical and weather-related features also tend to concentrate air pollution. 
Londoners have burned fuel for warmth as long as they've lived there. Air pollution, especially in wintertime, was a noticeable problem even in the Middle Ages. When people started to burn coal for fuel, it got much worse. Obviously, the colder it is, the more people burn their stoves and fireplaces, and for longer times. London in 1814 was full of stoves and chimneys. The Industrial Revolution was still in its early stages in 1814, but there was still plenty of smoke and soot in the atmosphere. As Londoners shivered in their houses, unable to go out, their chimneys pumped more and more crap into the air, creating a kind of pea soup fog of smoke and freezing condensation. If you've ever been in a fog like this, it's miserable. So here's the source of that image I asked you to imagine at the beginning of this podcast. London in early January 1814, a dimly lit, freezing, foggy hell, smelling like smoke and rot, streets dark and dangerous, desperate people shut up in their houses because it's too dangerous to go out. The fog eventually dissipated. Then came the snow. It started snowing on Monday, January 3rd, and didn't stop for 48 hours. This was the heaviest and longest snowfall that many Londoners could remember in their lifetimes. The snow made London even more treacherous and impassable. Two days' worth of heavy snow on top of the ice that Howard described crystallizing on every surface, even individual blades of grass. Well, if you live in a snowy place, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, among other places, you know that this is going to turn very, very quickly to very hard-packed ice. By the second full week of January, London was a skating rink, literally. People went ice skating in Hyde Park, and on just about every pond and river in the city. They were all frozen solid. The super cold temperatures hadn't abated since the cold snap started just after Christmas. Ferrymen on the Thames started to see blocks of ice drifting past, slowly growing larger, and at ebb tide, commerce on the river ground to a halt. At first blush, this may sound like a lot of fun. Probably it was for many people, but for a lot of others, London in the deep freeze was not just misery, it was ruin. Peoples whose livelihoods depended on free movement through the streets, like vendors of food or coach drivers, or people who collected night soil, crap, from cesspools and cisterns, they were effectively unemployed. If you've ever been to London and you've seen those big marketplaces, like uh, Leadenhall Market is one of them, Fresh Food Market, it's been there since the 14th century. It wasn't covered until the late 19th century. You can't imagine that there's going to be much business going on there when conditions are like this. So where do poor people get food, or water for that matter? The wells and pipes are all frozen and blocked up. People had to open up plugs in the streets. Many of London's water pipes were still wooden in 1814. If you have a stove or fireplace, where do you get coal for it? The price of coal in London skyrocketed during the freeze because it was so hard to get it up the river. What if you're pregnant with complications and the doctor or midwife can't reach your house because the roads are impassable? You take your chances with whoever happens to be on hand. Even if it goes off well, you better hope your baby doesn't freeze to death or die of hypothermia. Even middle-class or rich people had it bad. If your business depends on mails being delivered on time, or documents, or shipping, you're going to have a hard time in the freeze. Your best hope is that it won't last too long. But it did last long. The cold snap lingered for weeks with no end in sight. 
Then in mid-January, Britain and Ireland got exactly what they needed least, more heavy snow. On Monday, January 11th, an extraordinary storm dumped several feet of snow on Ireland and parts of England. Ireland was especially badly hit. There are reports of six feet of snow accumulating in some places within 48 hours. Mail and road communication between Dublin and the interior of Ireland was completely cut off. The quote at the beginning of this episode, from a Dublin newspaper, communicates the severity of the situation in Ireland. But the second snowfall was terrible in London as well. The weight of snow on rooftops was very heavy. After several buildings had already been crushed, city authorities started, on January 20th, going around sweeping snow off of accessible roofs. Where'd they shovel it? Well, into the streets, of course, making gigantic man-made snowdrifts that made the roads even more impassable. On Wednesday, January 26th, there finally seems to have been some relief. The wind shifted to the southwest, and temperatures rose above freezing for the first time in a month. As the ice began to melt, many people in London, and across England and Ireland, were happy to be able to get out and about again, though many corpses of people who died in the cold and the snowfalls were discovered and dug out, some having been there for weeks. The thaw, however, welcome as it was, made the Thames even more dangerous. Now huge icebergs were breaking loose all over the place, crashing against each other, against docks and bridges, and still making river traffic very difficult. As the thaw continued for the next three days, 27th, 28th, 29th, it actually had the effect of spreading the ice more evenly across the river, which is going to be important in a moment. Just when Londoners thought their fortunes had taken a turn for the better, the weather changed again. On Sunday, January 30th, what's described as a sharp frost set in. Temperatures plunged, and everything began to freeze. This is where hydrodynamics comes in. London Bridge was, in 1814, still the same old structure dating from medieval times. Originally built in the 12th century, it crossed the river by means of 19 stone arches, which were protected by wooden buttresses called starlings. The arches, and especially the starlings, really narrowed the effective passage of the river. Shooting the bridge, meaning passing under one of these arches, was pretty difficult and dangerous in a boat. The thing was, when the river started to get icy, the icebergs that came down from higher on the river started to pile up against the arches and starlings. This created a big ice dam on one side of the bridge, and on the other greatly restricted the flow of water. This meant that the Thames between London Bridge and Blackfriars began to freeze together into one thick, stable sheet of ice. When commerce halted yet again, a very curious thing happened. That crypto-London that I referred to at the beginning of this episode, concealed under the surface of everyday life, began to emerge into the cold daylight. It centered on the frozen Thames, and turned riverfront London into an entirely different and very mysterious place. The last frost fair was about to begin. Frost fairs, as Londoners called them, have a long and fascinating history. They're essentially carnivals, a spontaneous festival that springs up on the ice when the Thames freezes solid enough to support the weight of many people, horses, and sleds. Merchants open booths to sell food and drink. There's games for children and adults. 
Frost fairs weren't planned in advance. They weren't run by any kind of central authority. They just sort of happened. Though, of course, how they happened is a bit more complex of a story than it might seem at first. The history of frost fairs goes back to the early Middle Ages. The earliest instance of a carnival on the frozen Thames, which specifically mentions the establishment of booths, appears in the year 695, but we have very few details about it. Frost fairs are often associated with the folklore of England in the Elizabethan age. That undoubtedly stems from a famous frost fair that took place in 1564. During this frolic, it's recorded that boys played football on the ice, and there were many booths, games, and sports carried out on the frozen river. Even Queen Elizabeth got in on the fun. With her usual entourage of lords and ladies, she came down to the fair and took part in some of the games. There's a report of her shooting marks. Evidently, Elizabeth was pretty good with a bow and arrow. The next great frost fair was in 1608. Some historians claim this was the first true frost fair, though the definition's admittedly pretty elastic. There was not a fair every time the Thames froze over, and apparently there were sort of mini-events in certain instances that didn't really become the all-consuming bacchanalia like the one of 1814. In any event, the 1608 frost fair was quite famous. Elizabeth I was dead, but this one still seems quite Elizabethan in its character. One could imagine Shakespeare coming down for a drink of warm spiced rum, or perhaps to place a bet on bear baiting. Virginia Woolf used the 1608 Frost Fair as a colorful backdrop in her famous novel Orlando, written in 1928. That's the book about the title character, a transgender nobleman who lives for centuries and eventually transitions into a woman. Perhaps you see in the movie version, which is made in 1992, with Tilda Swinton as Orlando and Billy Zane, he was the uh, villainous fiancé in Titanic, uh, he played her lover. Both the book and the movie depict frost fairs more or less as they seem to be. A lot of fun, very romantic and exotic, but also with a sort of a dark side. There were also major frost fairs in 1683. That one was vividly described by John Evelyn, the famous British diarist, and several in the 18th century, the end of the so-called Little Ice Age, where you'd expect to see a lot of cold, harsh winters in England. Frost fairs also occurred in 1739, 1767, and the last one before, the one that concerns us, 1789, although that one was apparently smaller scale than some of the others. I bring up literature, Orlando and such, because it ties into this idea which I mentioned before the break, uh, and at the beginning of the podcast, a sort of hidden crypto-London that emerges into the daylight only in certain fairly unusual conditions. The idea of crypto-London has a particular hold in modern popular culture. Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, which came out in 1996, it was turned into a popular BBC series, expressly uses crypto-London, a fantasy world that exists underground, as its main setting. Crypto-London is a trope in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books. Surely you're familiar with those, or have at least seen the movies. Platform 9 and 3 quarters is a hidden terminal that's part of King's Cross Station, where you catch the Hogwarts Express train, so long as you're not a muggle, of course. The later Harry Potter adventures show us a lot more locations in Crypto-London. The whole story hinges on this sort of shadow fantasy world that exists behind the real world, and which only emerges sporadically. The kind of London that emerged at the time of the Frost Fairs 
was about as close to the notion of a fantasy crypto London as you could get in real life. Things really did seem different when the river froze and recreation and commerce began to center down there on the ice. There was a sense that rich and poor traded places during the frost fair, or at least intermingled more than they usually did. In addition to Queen Elizabeth coming down to shoot some arrows in 1564, King Charles II showed up at the Frost Fair of 1683, reportedly to do some fox hunting. And yes, they hunted foxes on the ice as well. Knowing Charles's penchant for strong drink and bawdy women, it's irresistible to, not to think that the king might have come to one of the booths set up on the ice for some grog, or a turn with one of London's many prostitutes, who had a heyday during the Frost Fairs. You'd rub shoulders with a lot of working-class Londoners during the Frost Fairs. Frost Fairs brought denizens of working-class London out into places where they usually didn't go. Take Coachman, for instance. With streets turned into skating rinks and filled with snowdrifts, especially after a long freeze, their business suffered tremendously because they couldn't get around. When the Thames froze solid enough to support horse and cart traffic, though, Suddenly, they've got a whole new thoroughfare to traverse. Sprinkle some ashes on the sand on the ice, start charging passengers for a quick trip through central London, bypassing all the usual traffic, and coachmen can supplement all of that income that they lost during the freeze. Showmen, actors, acrobats, animal keepers, during the frost fairs, they could come out of the dingy theaters and penned-in circuses where they usually worked and gain access to a whole new batch of customers. They set up puppet shows, horse races, and cockfights. There were circus performers like sword swallowers and fire eaters. Fun for kids of all ages, right? Well, fun for the darker elements of London's working class, too. Con artists, pickpockets, and muggers had a bunch of new customers as well. Some of the booths set up on the ice were brothels. And in the criminal underworld, prostitutes often worked hand-in-hand -hand with thieves. Pick a guy's pocket while he's busy with one of the ladies. You can imagine being robbed, ripped off, or held up at a frost fair just as easily as you can imagine having a jolly time. One of the things I hope you're getting from all of this is that the frost fairs, although they did have these fabulous and charming connotations going back to Elizabethan times, the frost fairs were driven by commerce. They were businesses. In fact, that was how the frost fair of 1814 began in earnest, a business. January 31, 1814, Monday. The ice on the Thames had only just solidified, and some adventurous people started trying to cross the river on foot. The center of the action, as I said earlier, was between Blackfriars Bridge and London Bridge, which traverses the center, very center of London. The next day, February 1st, it was obvious that the ice was thick enough to afford transportation across the river by foot and by carriage. Here's where London's watermen, the ferry boat captains, swung into action. Remember how I said that the freezing of the Thames offered the coachmen a new avenue to carry passengers? The ferrymen were especially eager to make sure that didn't happen this time. After all, their own business was at a standstill. When the river's frozen, you obviously can't cross by boat. In the 1683 Frost Fair, the Thames ferrymen were nearly wiped out economically by not being able to carry any fares and they appealed to the Lord Mayor of London to ban coach drivers from the ice, on the theory that they, the ferrymen, had legal dominion over any crossing over the surface of the Thames, whether by boat or on hooves and wheels. 
They lost that appeal. The Lord Mayor and the city government didn't intervene on their behalf. In 1814, though, the ferrymen were smart. They posted notices at the end of all streets that led down to the city side of the river, announcing safe passage by foot across the river at certain pathways that they kept marked and groomed with ashes. Of course, he had to pay a fare to get across. The ferrymen also, as they had sometimes done in previous frost fairs, got in on the business themselves, setting up booths to sell drinks, food, souvenirs, games, or entertainment. They set up booths and stalls in parallel rows on either side of the pathways leading across the river. As a customer of the ferryman, having paid your tuppence or threepence to cross the river, you could have access to whatever you wanted. Spend the day down there if you want, because chances are, in this intense cold and with all the chaos in the city, your own business is probably still closed. The first real day of the 1814 Frost Fair, Tuesday, February 1st, saw one of the more famous rituals. Some people, perhaps ferrymen or some other kinds of entrepreneurs, roasted an entire sheep in an iron pan over a coal fire set up right there on the ice. Customers paid sixpence to watch the barbecue and a shilling for a slice of what was called Lapland mutton. By the end of the day, there were a great number of booths with flags, streamers, and signs of all colors. A lot of them sold gin or beer. Some offered baked goods or gingerbread. Candy and sweets for kids were also very popular. Wednesday, February 2nd. By now, the frost fair was in full swing. The main path between the banks was called the City Road, and it was lined on both sides by all sorts of makeshift businesses. Even printers got in on the action. They started hauling printing presses, actual printing presses, eight or ten of them, onto the ice and printing souvenir books for sale to the passersby, printed and bound right there on the ice. One such book has survived, and it's a fascinating one. It gives a name to that crypto-London that emerged into the cold daylight that extraordinary week, Frostiana. Like the name of a fantasy kingdom, I don't think Neil Gaiman or J.K. Rowling could do quite so well. Its full title is Frostiana, or A History of the River Thames in a Frozen State, with an account of the late severe frost and the wonderful effects of frost, snow, ice, and cold in England and in different parts of the world, interspersed with various amusing anecdotes to which is added the art of skating. <sighs> yes, that's its full title. And it gives you a pretty good summary of the kinds of things you find in this book. The title page reads, London, printed and published on the ice on the River Thames, February 5th, 1814, by G. Davis. One of the pamphlets printed in Frostiana read, quote, Friends, now is your time to support the freedom of the press. Can the press have greater liberty? Here you find it working in the middle of the Thames, and if you encourage us by buying our impressions, we will keep it going in the true spirit of liberty during the frost. Some printed poetry. Here's some. Behold, the river Thames is frozen o'er, which lately ships of mighty burden bore. Now different arts and pastimes here you see, but printing claims the superiority. Thursday, February 3rd. By now, thousands of people were attending the Frost Fair. There were swings on stilts. A barge brought out onto the ice was converted into a dance floor. Evidently, the weather was good this day. From down there on the ice, between London and Blackfriars, the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral was highly visible, sort of floating above the scene, bone white, maybe a little gray, 
The streaks of coal dust you see on it today weren't really noticeable until Victorian times. The whole city was white. By Friday, February 4th, the frost fair was beginning to take a toll. Nobody expected it would last that much longer, even though the one in 1683 had lasted weeks. A couple of people by now had ventured outside the pathways and broken through the ice. Garbage from booths and stalls was accumulating everywhere and had to be raked up. But at least the ferrymen were making out. Unlike in 1683, the 1814 frost fair was very profitable. By some reports, they took home six pounds a day, about the equivalent of $80 in today's money. Saturday, February 5th, was the last day of the frost fair. There was still music, dancing, lots of drinking, gambling, and plenty of criminal activity. This was the day, if the title page of Frostiana can be believed, that this book was printed. But the ice was thinning. Towards evening, cracks appeared in the city road. It just wasn't safe anymore. That scene in Orlando depicts the end of the 1608 frost fair with the breaking up of the ice. That's pretty much how it was in 1814. With cracks starting to appear and people falling through, or almost falling through, the booths started coming down and carts stopped trying to cross. The party was over. The crypto London, called Frostiana, went back into hiding. The tide came in about 2 a.m. on Sunday, February 6th, and soon the Thames was flowing again, though huge chunks of ice were still floating and jamming up along the supports of the bridges. Thousands of people who either didn't make it to the frost fair earlier, or who had wanted to come again, appeared on the banks of the river in the morning, disappointed that it was over. But for many, especially those whose livelihoods were affected by the Great Freeze, it must have been a relief. The great cold snap of 1813-1814 was over. Temperatures struggled back above freezing, the snow and ice melted, and slowly London and the rest of England returned to more or less normal. The big freeze had lasted six weeks, from December 26, 1813 to February 6, 1814. No one could know it yet, but the Frost Fair of 1814 was the very last of the tradition. The crypto London of Frostiana would never again be seen. You might think it was because of global warming. After all, the Thames doesn't freeze solid anymore, at least not that solid. Global warming certainly doesn't make another frost fair likely under any circumstances, but the real reason for the end of the tradition has to do with that London Bridge. In 1831, the old medieval London Bridge was torn down and replaced. This was not, incidentally, the old London Bridge that wound up in Lake Havasu City, Arizona, that was the bridge, known as Rennie's Bridge, that replaced the Medieval Bridge. Rennie's Bridge was a very different design than the old Medieval Bridge, which was the one that had existed in 1814. There were fewer supports and the spans were much wider, meaning that the Thames flowed more freely under it than it had the old bridge. A more quick-flowing river is much harder to freeze solid. Rennie's Bridge was replaced by still a more modern design, a monstrosity in my opinion, in 1973. So this is why there will likely never be another frost fair on the River Thames. Frostiana exists only in memory, folklore, books, and history. That's today's story from the second decade. Join me again for another story from this remarkable time in history two centuries ago. If you like this podcast, please share it tell somebody about it, mention it on your social media, your Twitter, your Facebook page, YouTube, whatever. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. 
My historical sources for this episode include The Thames by Jonathan Schneer, Yale University Press 2005, Luke Howard, The Climate of London, published in London by Harverian Darton, 1833, and most notably, Frostiana, author unknown, published by G. Davis on the ice on the River Thames, February 5th, 1814. Guest voice, Michael Dunn as the Dublin reporter. Thanks to Michael and thanks to the various people on Twitter who responded when I said I needed an Irish-accented voice for this podcast. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.